Yes, sir. Good vibes on game day eve from the Big Cat. Welcome back to Raging Review, everybody. Josh sitting in for Matt one more time. One more little gift we'd like to impart before game time on Saturday. We had an opportunity to interview Mr. Stuart Mandel, formerly of SI, creator of the mailbag, formerly of Fox Sports, and now the editor-in-chief over at The Athletic, which honestly has become the gold standard for sports coverage in American sports. I mean, it's, it's as good as advertised, and if you haven't subscribed yet, you're missing out. Um, Stuart was kind enough to come in, sit with us for about half an hour, a little over that, and um, you know, really give some good wisdom, gave some insight on the Texas game. So we wanted to share that before kickoff. And uh, obviously, you guys know, with everything that's been going on in South Louisiana, things have been kind of turned upside down. So there's a little, there's a few kinks. Obviously, we pre-recorded it, and we wanted to butt end with a preview at the beginning of it, and. Uh, a recap at the end, and maybe I can supply that. I haven't decided just yet. We'll see how it goes. But uh, without further ado, this is Mr. Stuart Mandel, and the recording, if I remember right, took place, um, must have been uh, on the 23rd of August, I think is correct. So if you guys will just, you know, enjoy it. It's it's a good time. It's a good time of year. Football is here. We're going to Austin, and right at about 26 hours to take down Bevo and the most delusional fan base in college sports outside of Ohio State and that ugly school across the basin. So enjoy, everybody. Appreciate you guys listening. And uh, go Cajuns. Chris Russo of Russo Exploration encourages you to donate to the Raging Cajun Athletic Foundation. The RCAF, the official fundraising arm of Louisiana Athletics, supports over 400 student-athletes across 16 NCAA sports. You can invest in the RCAF today for as little as $5 a month. Just go to myrcaf.org to get started or call 337-851-RCAF. As always, donations to the RCAF are tax-deductible. Your investment today will enrich the lives of every athlete that puts on the vermilion and white. Go Cajuns! Schilling Distributing Company, Acadiana's top alcohol distributor for over 70 years, has been a proud supporter of Louisiana athletics for many of those years. Now, they've kindly decided to become the exclusive distributing sponsor of the Rage and Review podcast. This is just another chapter in Schilling Distributing's rich history of giving back to the Lafayette community. Starting as an Anheuser-Busch exclusive distributor, they're now expanded to include local brews for your sipping pleasure. Schilling services over 1,500 local businesses throughout the Acadiana area, employing 160 Ragin' Cajun residents, and they boast over 1,400 years of combined experience. Corporately headquartered right here in Lafayette at 2901 Moss Street, Schilling Distributing encourages Cajun Nation to enjoy their beverages responsibly and reminds you to download the Liquid Finder app today.
Welcome back to Region Review. Matt Miguez, Jerry Abair, Josh Jagno here with you. Rage and Review is sitting down with the editor-in-chief of the Athletic College Football Division, Mr. Stuart Mandel. Stuart, first of all, good evening, and thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Doing well. How are you guys? Oh, man. We are, we are excited to be sitting down with arguably one of the biggest names in college football journalism, that's for sure. You know... Oh, geez. Don't pump it up like that. People are gonna be, it's gonna be such a letdown when people actually listen to the interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. I mean, the 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 resume that, that you've put together is just absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And that's actually my first question. You know, editor in chief at the Athletic, podcaster. You're you're a two time author. You've worked at SI. You've worked at Fox Sports. You know, how how do you juggle it all? And and also, you know. As an aspiring journalist myself, you know, one thing I've heard from a lot of people is that after a while, you kind of stop loving it so much just because of how much of a grind it is. Do, do you still enjoy the grind, the, you know, the constant running around with your head cut off come August? Yeah. Well, you know, like any job, there's certain parts you like better than others. And there's, we have all have aggravations, even in this job. Some people might think that, you know, I know a lot of people think it's a dream job and and it is. So I try to, on my worst days, I try not to let it get to me too much and remember that, you know, and this was especially we drew here this weekend and and next weekend for 14 Saturdays this fall that I'm getting paid to watch college football and, and to go out to some of the biggest games in the country and, and talk to some, you know, the great coaches and players that play this sport. I don't take that for granted. Um, the job is a lot busier than, or I guess a lot, uh, you, know, you have to do a lot more things than you did 20 years ago when it was pretty straightforward, write and report. I think any, uh, if you want to be relevant as a journalist today, you should be versed in podcasting. You should be versed in social media, obviously. Um, we don't do as many videos as the athletic as maybe I have at some other places, but it doesn't hurt to have those reps as well. So you do have to juggle a lot. There is a lot of multitasking. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, of course I, um, and especially after our last year, um, when we didn't necessarily know what kind of season we were going to get, it's great to be on the verge of covering another season. Stuart, Josh here. I just wanted to say thank you, first of all, for doing this. We really enjoy getting national guys on. Uh, always add a, a, a good spice for, for what we're trying to do at Rage and Review and uh, but like we told Bruce Feldman when we had him on last year, um, I am fascinated with SI because I'm a 90s kid and I grew up with Sports Illustrated plastered all over my walls. And uh, something in particular that has always stuck with me was the final days of the enterprise that, you know, seemed to be untouchable for so long for so many of us. Uh, I'm curious about your last days. You know, the mailbag was always a, a thing that I enjoyed that you did. Um, just curious about your, your days and your experience at SI and how that all went down for you. Well, like you, I grew up, uh, getting the, the magazine in the mail every week and, and couldn't wait for it. I actually had a letter to the editor published when I was 13 about the Cincinnati Bengals. So, uh, that was probably a sign of, of where I was heading ahead in a career. Um, and when I got there, I actually went to work at what was then CNNSI.com. Eventually they dropped the CNN from it. And, um, you know, had so many amazing career experiences there. You know, the problem, as you said, is that 
the SI we all grew up on is not the SI it is today. And um, I kind of had a firsthand, uh, you know, a firsthand view of that in terms of, you know, I worked, I always worked on the internet side of it when I was there and did some, as, as I got more uh, entrenched there, I got to do more and more things for the magazine. But my job was always primarily to write for the website. And I can tell you that, you know, way past the date that it was obvious to the rest of the world that digital was our future, the SI was still very much um, held the magazine up to be much more prestigious and much more important to them. They didn't place the emphasis on digital that they needed to. And because of that, they fell behind. And it's been hard for them to catch back up. Um, You know, all print publications, uh, legacy media publications are struggling because the ad, you know, supported model just doesn't work anymore. Um, they, I know they, SI.com recently added a digital subscription. And look, I, I go way, way back with um, their managing editor, Ryan Hunt. I'm obviously friends with guys like Pat Forty and, and Ross Dellinger, and I wish them nothing but success. Um, but they've had to overcome a lot of mistakes that were made with, by a lot of their predecessors. Stu, what's going on, man? Jerry here. Uh, I'll repeat what Matt and Josh said. Thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us today. It's an honor having you uh, as college football fans. But I did want to ask, you have written two books, which include Bowls, Poles, and Tattered Souls, and A Thinking Fan's Guide to the College Football Playoff. Um, Pretty much with all the work that you do already as a journalist and a writer, where does becoming an author rank on your totem pole uh, as far as career achievements go? I mean, the first one in particular, which was a full-length book, you know, put out by a publisher, the second one I self-published, uh, was, you know, a bucket list thing. It was, you know, I think any writer grows up dreaming of having a book on the bookshelves. And I, I would go around to, I lived in New York at the time, and I'd go around to various bookstores and take pictures of it on the bookshelves and all that. It was really hard. It was two years of work. Um, and I didn't come away from it, like, feeling, you know, a lot of people do a new book every couple of years. Bruce, God bless them, has done four or five books at this point. I did not have that, so I have that uh, metabolism uh, because covering college football year round, writing several columns a week is, uh, you know, plenty to keep me busy. And uh, so it wasn't like, people always ask me, when's your next book? When's your next book? I don't have any plans to do another book, but I'm really glad that I did that one uh, and to have that whole experience to be able to, I mean, I still have the, there's like a big blown up poster of the cover that is sitting behind me as we speak. Yeah. uh, Bowls, poles and tattered souls was, was definitely a classic. I remember when I was a, I was a kid, uh, my dad reading it and then handing it off to, I don't know, I was probably 11 or 12 at the time showing my age there. But uh, man, you know, even, even for a 12 year old, you know, who, who's just starting to fully get into, the world of college football, man, that, that book was eye opening for me. And, uh, you know, Stuart, you've been an open critic of how poorly and chaotic the NCAA has been run now for many years, you know, with everything going on now with NIL and just the chaos in the NCAA for lack of better words, do you have mixed feelings about what we're seeing or, since you've been a critic for a while now, is it kind of a, I told you so moment? Um, it's been, uh, you know, the, the deterioration of the NCAA has been uh, going on over probably at least a decade. I think the Jerry Sandusky Penn State scandal was kind of a, 
uh, dark moment for them in that they tried to steal the headlines. And, and, you know, if you remember, they initially came out with huge sanctions for Penn State, and then they got overturned in court, or at least some of them did. And it was a, you know, that was one of those moments where they lost a lot of credibility. The North Carolina academic fraud case, which to any, you know, common person reading it would be like, oh my gosh, this is as blatant as it gets. And they got off without any punishment because they basically lawyered their way out of it. So thing after thing after thing like that, I think during COVID last summer, when all the conferences are trying to figure out how they're going to return to play, the NCA was noticeably silent. So, um, and then that Supreme Court decision a few months ago, which was a, a, a pretty harsh uh, repudiation of the whole NCA model. So um, I'm not like, uh, to answer your question, I'm not like sitting here gleeful that the NCA is is taking all these hits, but I'm fascinated to see what the next step is because I do think we're heading toward a future that I could not have predicted where the NCA becomes kind of takes a backseat and isn't necessarily all that powerful. And the conferences themselves are, are basically running sports, running college sports. And that is not going to help with the whole pe- with people who think there should be a czar or a commissioner of college football. It seems like we're getting even further away from that. I do think it will be better in the long run for the power five conferences because they're no longer being, um, you know, they'll no longer be wed to these small, either low division one or even lower schools that they have nothing in common with in terms of making decisions. But uh, it's not going to be good for the little guy. And, and I do think the, SEC rating the Big 12 was your first glimpse of that in terms of these power conferences are going to consolidate power even further. And, you know, I do think we're looking at a future where the SEC makes decisions for the SEC and the Big 10 makes either, either the Big 10 makes decisions for the Big 10, Big 10 or those three conferences that are talking about an alliance do it in some sort of fashion. And, you know, obviously they, uh, there goes the traditional notion in the NCA of trying to legislate competitive balance tell you what that baylor uh, decision or finding whatever you want to call it didn't help their case either that was an absolute disgrace but uh i guess i'll digress on that uh, matt mentioned the nil and i i remember specifically you writing in-depth articles and columns about the ed o'bannon versus ncaa case uh and i didn't know anything about ed o'bannon other than watching him play for ucla back in the 90s uh, or maybe it was early 2000s, but either way, um, what was it like covering that story? I mean, it turned out to be one of the biggest stories in NCAA history, you know, now that 2021 has come and the NIL is a thing. Uh, can you kind of regale some some anecdotal stories from that time? And has it shaped, how has it shaped your your opinion on the NIL as a whole? It was really fascinating. It was, a, it was a really interesting experience. It was about a three-week trial in Oakland, and I happened to live uh, in the South Bay here in the Bay Area, so I could just drive up there every day. And, I mean, first of all, I had never covered any sort of trial, um, so it was cool to be in a courtroom. And, it hadn't, you know, it's um, the NCAA hadn't yet gotten quite bogged down in legal cases the way they have now, so it was a really novel thing that basically – they held a three-week trial over amateurism. And, you know, for one by one, the, the plaintiff would put up these uh, witnesses. There's you know, a lot of very dry antitrust experts and whatnot um, to, to make the case why the NCA is a cartel. 
And then the NCA would put up its witnesses to try to defend the model. And that was a really eye-opening thing to me because I just found, I, I truly went in there with an open mind. I was willing to weigh both sides of it and decide who I thought won. And it was so, the NCA got so outclassed and they had, and their arguments were so um, defying. You had to really like roll your eyes at something. Even the judge herself was kind of rolling her eyes at some of the things they were saying. And it was the moment where I realized, uh, okay, then the traditional notion we've always held, the players cannot receive a penny, uh, that it would somehow damage college sports. I think that might be on its last legs because just you could just tell from this judge in Oakland who had no uh, prior, didn't seem like she followed college sports at all. And she's listening to Mark Emmert and these others get up there and explain why, you know, if, I, don't, I can't remember who was popular in 2014, but we'll say Johnny Manziel uh, makes $150 to sign an autograph that it's going to ruin his academic experience. You could tell she just wasn't buying that. And here we are uh, seven years later, and um, we now have legal NIL and, and probably more to come after that. Yeah, the only thing I remember about Ed O'Bannon, or one of the main things, is that I, I've played every NCAA football game on my PlayStation since 1997, 1998. And uh, because of Ed O'Bannon, I'm still playing my 2013 or 2014 yeah. version eight years later. So, I, you know, that's the one thing I think most college football fans will remember outside of the NIL is we finally get our video game back. And I'm here I am, 32 years old, and I still play it. It's nostalgic, right? Um, anyways... Yeah, uh, I mean, so everybody loves that video game. And I think the unfortunate thing is that Ed O'Bannon kind of became a villain to a lot of college sports fans because he took away their video game. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I get away, that. Man. I miss the video game too, but he, it's not his fault. It's the NCAA that was for years just kind of turning out, turning an eye and, and pretending that they didn't realize that they were using the real players' uh, images in that game. You know, if you had just said, yeah, okay, uh, we're making a lot of money off this video game. We should probably let the players uh, get a royalty fee or something. This, we would have never had to come to this. I had a I had a buddy of mine that played for Louisiana back in the day. I think he played like an 06 or 07, and he shared on Facebook his, uh, I think it was like a $12 check he got from the NCAA once the court settlement happened. And it was like 12 bucks or something like that. Or it might have been the NCAA basketball game. I think he might have been a former basketball player, but I remember everybody getting compensated there. 10 bucks, they can go to Burger King with it or whatever. But anyways, <laughs> moving on, Stu. Um, so you just mentioned about how basically these these uh, P5 conferences are almost monopolizing themselves. Uh, what is your opinion? Uh, last week, there's a rumored scheduled alliance between the Big Ten, Pac-12, and the ACC in a way to combat what the SEC has done. Um, what does that mean for the future of college football? What's your opinion on it? As well as how, that, how that's going to affect schools like Louisiana and the G5. I don't think even those conferences could tell you exactly yet what this alliance is going to look like. It's uh, clearly a, a direct response to feel they, they all feel very um, slighted by Greg Sankey. Uh, I'm not sure that's fair. If Texas and Oklahoma came calling to their conferences, they would have taken them too. But um, so it seems like they're more focused on stuff the fan, fans don't care about, right? Like legis NCAA legislation and governance and all that. But you would assume there'll be some sort of scheduling component to it. And depending on how uh, how deep that goes, it could be bad for the Louisianas because if, if you're the uh, Pac-12 and the ACC, uh, no, let's say Pac-12 and Big Ten, since they both have TV deals coming up very soon. 
and they're not going to expand, but they want to be able to go to their TV partners and say, now we're going to be able to guarantee you, we want more money because now we're going to be able to guarantee you that, you know, Ohio State's playing Oregon this year. In this new alliance, Ohio State's going to play two of those kind of games. They're going to play Oregon and USC. And Michigan's going to play, you know, some equivalent of that among those two conferences. Then that's one less spot on team schedules for a group of five teams. Um, I think there'll always be some room for a group of five games because the power five schools need to play seven, seven, possibly eight home games a year. And you can't just do nothing but home and home. Uh, but there may be fewer of those. And we got a little bit of a peak of that last year. Um, in fact, your guys' team was one of the only ones that actually got to play and beat a power five school. But, you know, you saw what an SEC schedule would look like if they only played each other. Um, Big Ten, uh, Pac-12 as well. And I don't think they're ever going to do that. But I think that the days that, you know, Alabama could put three, you know, nobodies on their schedule and the stadium would still, still sell out are gone. Um, you have to put a good product on the field to get the fans in the stands. And then certainly, obviously, to maximize your TV value. So I think the future of, of Power 5 scheduling is going to be, you know, maybe right now it's one marquee game and three guarantee games. Uh, I think it'll be two and even possibly three marquee games and one guarantee game. You know, Stu, one thing that you brought up in, in that conversation, we were talking about OU and Texas moving on to the SEC. In my opinion, what people aren't talking about enough right now is the aftermath for the Big 12. Do they mm-hmm. survive the, the OU-Texas exit? And if they do, what would be the game plan in your mind for them to proceed and still be a viable conference like they have been for years and years now. I mean, the silver lining for those schools, I don't think they're going to get picked up by another conference. Not, you know, some people have speculated Pac-12 or maybe West Virginia, the ACC, but this alliance that they're forming tells me that's not a big priority for those leagues. Um, the silver lining is that I do, you know, it may be on hold for a little bit, but we will move to a bigger playoff that has automatic birth. And if it's still six, you know, top six conference champions make it, then even a conference that's just those remaining Big 12 schools, and we'll say they add UCF and Cincinnati, or, you know, name your, your couple groups of five schools, that conference's champ is going to go to the playoff almost every year. And in fact, those schools, those remaining schools, will have a better shot than they do now because they won't be, um, you know, Oklahoma wins that conference every year right now, and then you don't have to, to deal with them anymore. So it's good in that perspective, but it's obviously a tough blow revenue-wise. And, and I've written about this, others have as well, the notion that, that Texas and Oklahoma <clears throat> represent about 50% of the value of their TV deal. So it's going to get cut in half just by them leaving. And then you just don't know if they might even be cut even more um, when their next deal comes up. And that'll be tough. Um, there's no easy way to replace that revenue. It probably more realistically means they just won't have as much money to invest in football. And also they may have to cut some other teams and you don't want that obviously, but um, I don't see another easy solution for them. So Stu, um, you know, speaking of college football playoff, you know, we've seen the evolution of, you know, from the BCS in 98, all the way to the start of the college football playoff in 2014, We've done the four teams, and now there's talks of possible expansion, uh, whether it's six teams, eight teams, even 12 teams, some of which to include maybe a G5. Um, would you consider that a, 
a good thing where you get to expand, you get more games, or a bad thing to where maybe the four-game playoff is good enough? What's your opinion on the, the, the expansion of the playoff? Well, the problem with the four-team playoff is, is I don't think you need more than four teams to determine the national champions. You know, the, the best team in the country in a given year is going to be in the top four. The problem is the sport in the way it's constructed and the way it's uh, is played out lately is that you just have this very small group of programs going year in year out. And, um, and college football can be a, a self-fulfilling thing like that. The more Clemson goes to the playoffs, the more they're able to attract even better recruits and keep going to the playoffs. And so something is that when it's feeling very exclusionary to the rest of the country. So I feel like you expansion is um, necessary at this point. Because eventually, people are just going to get sick of that version of the sport. They don't want to watch the same teams every year. And they don't want to feel like, you know, if you're a Pac-12 fan, you haven't been to the playoff in five years, it might as well be another sport. So it is important for the sport to um, open its doors to everybody, uh, that everybody in the country, including Group of Five, starts the season feeling like they've got a legit shot to be part of the main event at the end of the year. The downside of that will be, that the days where you're watching this big regular season game in November and the loser is out, um, that's not going to be that kind of sport anymore. There isn't going to be that kind of stakes of one game. You just have to hope that um, that the trade-off of, well, now instead of there only being six to eight teams left to have any shot in November goes to 15 or 20 uh, and more people and more games matter, uh, that that will be a, a worthy trade-off. You know, Stu, Obviously, we brought it up earlier. You you've been you've been a critic of the NCAA. You've also been regarded as kind of an outspoken thought leader in, in the national media circles, talking about perception. And obviously, you know everybody says today that perception is reality. Have you seen a major difference in perception regarding non traditional powers? I mean, obviously, last year you had Liberty, Coastal Carolina, Louisiana programs like that. But obviously, more specifically, we want to talk about. Louisiana Rage and Cajuns in your time in national media how has the perception of smaller programs like Louisiana changed um well I think that because there's been so much conference shuffling over the last decade I mean whenever there has been a a Boise stage or I guess for even before that Utah that rises up and crashes the party um they get a lot of tension people do like those stories um but, you know, it, I, think, I think the big positive for Louisiana and, and is that the Sun Belt has a lot more. I mean, I feel like the Sun Belt for many years was kind of the forgotten one of those conferences. Um, I don't remember when exactly, but there was definitely a year where 6 and 16 won the Sun Belt. And they were kind of at the bottom rung of the Power Five. And to their credit, as the dominoes of realignment fell, they actually got better. They went out and got Appalachian State and Georgia Southern and Georgia State and Coastal Carolina and became a better conference. And so to answer your question, last year in particular was like a golden age for the Sun Belt in that people were watching. I mean, I was tuned in. I know a lot of people were when uh, Coastal and Louisiana played on a, in a midweek game. Uh, certainly that BYU-Coastal Carolina game got huge attention. Um, I feel like a lot of people, lot of, everybody knows about App State and, and a lot of their games get a lot of attention. So relatively speaking, you know, you're never going to, um, you know, I don't think you're ever going to get like a large number of people who watch those teams every week, but they're watching their big games. They're paying attention to them. 
they know that, for instance, Louisiana beat Iowa State last year, and, and they're going to be watching them closely this year when they play Texas. It's an interesting point. And to kind of piggyback off of Matt's question, uh, you know, programs like a Louisiana, we've been left out in the cold for so long. We just want to be talked about, man. So it's fun to be part of the national conversation. And you made a great point about the Sun Belt actually increasing its quality over a period of time. And as good as Boise State was for so many years, until their league got better, it was difficult for them to get traction and, you know, obviously beating Oklahoma on national television and winning big game after big game will help. Uh, but you know, they're, they're a, that's an exclusive category that they were a part of for a 15 year run. We, on the other hand, were a part of a league that is still on the way up. And when I say we, obviously I'm talking about Louisiana, um, the, the, the belt, the, the league and all of its, um, its members have a real commitment to getting better. Um, so it's interesting to say, to hear someone in the national media say it that way. And I appreciate your, your perspective on that. Uh, my question though, is from a Stu Mandel or anybody in a, in a position like your own, what is the 20,000 foot view of the raging Cajuns, uh, specifically in 2021, obviously we're going to Austin. We have a chance to, uh, we, we believe we have a chance to win. And, um, again, it's fun to be part of the, the national conversation. So just curious of how you see the, the raging Cajuns in 2021. I think uh, I was already high on them, and then I was a little bit pleasantly surprised that they are starting in the AP Top 25. So clearly the voters have, have noticed them over the last couple of years. I mean, I really – I don't think anybody really knew much about the program before Billy Napier took over, and he's had uh, such a tremendous impact in a short amount of time. And so it feels like one of those um, seasons, one of those opportunities, I think of UCF a few years ago, where the stars have aligned, they have a great coach, they have basically their whole team coming back, they have an experienced quarterback, and like you said, they have this opportunity week one in a national televised game against a Blue Blood program to um, put themselves on the map. And so uh, it's just, you know, I would, I would just say that to, to fans, soak it in. These opportunities don't come up all the time, and, you know, it's a chance to have a really special season. You know, we remember, <clears throat> I remember back in the day, you know, having those uh, seasons where we'd win two games, three games, and we were just happy to make a bowl game, you know, six, seven wins. And to see, you know, this program come full circle, it's long overdue. But like you said, we're definitely enjoying the ride. So, uh, as you know, the Cajuns go into Austin on September 4th against the Texas Longhorns. Um, you know, I know Texas... New quarterback, you know, Sam Ellinger has gone to the NFL. Uh, I know that they've they had an up and down year last year. I'm not quite on par of what their expectations are, but uh, new head coach. I know the Tom Herman project is pretty much done in Austin. Now they got Steve, Sar Steve Sarkeesian. Uh, what's your opinion of the Texas Longhorns? And um, how do you feel about Steve Sarkeesian taking the job? And uh, what kind of expectations do you have for them? Um. I think that they have, you know, a wide range of possibilities. I think that you, you hit on the key one. They have two quarterbacks who are battling for the starting spot. Um, Casey Thompson had such a great, uh, came in, in the ha at halftime of the bowl game and had such a great game. And it's hard to believe that he hasn't already locked it up, but, but that's the case. And I think the most exciting thing about Texas in 2021 is they have a running back, Bijan Robinson, who most of us expect to be, you know, like Heisman contending, uh, exciting one of the most exciting players in the country and especially with Sark calling the plays much like he did with Devontae Smith at Alabama last year he he will find ways to get his best player the ball 
uh, in creative ways. So their season will probably hinge on, we know he'll be good. What else can they do? How, how effective a passing game can they have? Um, they've been pretty mediocre on defense for, it seems like, forever. Uh, do they have the pieces to actually turn into more of a, a top-notch defense? We'll see. But, you know, I'm very excited to see what they look like. That, that, that's why this game uh, is very exciting from a national standpoint. Uh, we get, you know, we get to see uh, Louisiana play a big-time opponent, and we get to see what Texas looks like in their first game with SARS. Stu, I know you're not in the uh, in the betting game. I don't. I don't think you. I've not seen you write anything about the whole uh, the whole betting thing that has recently just become all the rage. But would love to get your predictions of the game or your thoughts on the game. Do you think that the Cajuns can make a a statement there in Austin and, and run away with a win, or do you think that Texas's talent kind of takes over and you know the the P five lore just kind of does what it does? What do you think? I consider it a coin flip game and. And one that sets up well for Louisiana because um, Texas, in, in this is kind of a, uh, all the pressure is on Texas. Um, they're playing a team that we all know is really good, but if they lose, people will still make fun of them for losing to a Sunbelt team. So it's kind of like they lost to Maryland in back-to-back openers a few years ago. Didn't matter that Maryland was actually pretty decent. They got made fun of for that. So um I think it, it lines up well. I don't know. I don't, off of my head, I don't know what the point spread is. You guys probably do. But, you know, I, I would have a hard time. You know, I don't know yet who I'm going to pick. It's a tough one, but I certainly think they can win. Well, that's, well, coming from you, Stu, that, that means a lot. Uh, so we, we definitely take your, your word seriously. So that means a lot for us because that means that, you know, we, we, we must be pretty good to, uh, to go toe-to-toe with the Longhorns. I did want to ask you, Stu, uh, we talked a little bit about conference realignment. Um, and right now, you know, around here in, in Lafayette, you know, we, we're kind of, you know, we, we, we've, as fans, we do have a little bit of wishful thinking, possibly one day maybe getting into the American or maybe wherever. Uh, our name has come up. For all of these different scenarios on where Louisiana can go, even somebody mentioned the Big 12 um, on Twitter a few weeks ago. Uh, I did want to ask you, uh, with everything that's played out so far, what is the potential for a school like Louisiana to move out of the Sun Belt into a possibly maybe a bigger conference like maybe the AAC or the Big 12? What, what's your view on that? I think the AAC would probably be the more realistic one. And... Um, they are, they already have a team in, in Louisiana. They already, you know, have a pretty wide, um, geographic span. Um, they, uh, they have a good uh, contract with ESPN. So it'd probably be a little bit more exposure. Um, but like I said earlier, yeah, I don't know that. I mean, first of all, I think the Sunbelt is on the rise. I think it's a good league to be in. Um, and I also don't know how much of a difference it'll really be, um, revenue wise between those two leagues. So, you know, once we have, if we do get this 12-team playoff sooner than later and there's chances for six uh, conference champs to make it automatically, you know, there will be a path to do that from the Sun Belt. And in fact, uh, if, if it had been in place last year, Coastal Carolina would have gone. So there isn't necessarily a, a huge urgency to move to a different conference. Um, but I could see if the um, what's left of the Big 12 raids the uh, AAC and take some of their top programs, then yeah, they would be looking to add new members. And logically speaking, a lot of those best candidates are in the Sun Belt. All right, Stuart, you know, a couple more questions before we let you go. W- one that we've all kind of been asking, you know, as, as editor in chief of 
the college football section for the athletic. You know, what's what's next for the athletic? What kind of plans do y'all have to, you know, maybe expand? Or what's the game plan for the next couple of years? And also, what's next for Stuart Mandel? Uh, what's next for Stuart Mandel is to keep doing what I do. I'm going to be with the athletic for a long time. Uh, we'll continue to find new ways to, uh, you know, new, new ideas for content and whatnot. The athletic is still a relatively young company even though we've, you know, grown rapidly in the last three or four years. And I think um, what you're going to continue to see is it becoming a more complete product. It started as, uh, you know, way back when it started as just a few local markets and then it became more national. Um, I think people came to know us primarily for really good features and we do that, but we want to be known for everything. We want to be the place you come for breaking news, the place for podcasts, uh, the place uh, for, you know, you know, not everything has to be a Pulitzer winning story. You're, you're going to want to come for our game picks and predictions. We now have a partnership with BetMGM for gambling. So um, there's no reason why it can't be your one-stop shop uh, in, in, on that app every day. So you're going to continue to see, or I would say over the next six months or so, more and more uh, revamping of the app and of the product uh, so that there should be no reason that you need to go to any other sports apps. You should be able to get everything on there. That's great news because you guys do a phenomenal job in every endeavor that you've pretty much tried out to this point. And I'm a huge fan. Um, count me in the number that never thought I'd pay for sports writing. And I, I can't imagine my life without it. So uh, continued success to all you guys. My last question is as a former, I'm sorry, as a fellow podcaster, um, what's it been like to work with Bruce and do the, uh, the audible podcast? Have you enjoyed that, that form of, of, you know, getting out content, uh, just talk a little bit about that because obviously it's near and dear to our hearts. Bruce and I have known each other since 1998. Uh, we started the audible in 2014. We were both at Fox and it just comes very naturally for us because we talk all the time offline about college football. So to put a microphone up and talk about it on a microphone for 60 minutes is not a big ask. Um, I hope the chemistry comes through. We like to give each other crap and sometimes people think one of us is being mean to the other, but I swear that's, all in good, good fun. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think the feeling, thing that feels really good is, you know, um, obviously I like when people read my articles, but sometimes I'll go to a game, uh, I'll be out in a college town. And a lot of times I hear people come up and say, Hey, I love the audible. And that's cool. It's cool to know that we are part of somebody's, uh, you know, experience, uh, on their commute or at the gym, uh, that we become part of their weekly, uh, listening habits. No doubt about it. Big fan of the Audible. Big fan. Big, big fan of the Athletic. Stuart Mandel, thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy your evening with the family, and uh, enjoy, you know, one last breath before the next five months of craziness. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for all your kind words. You were too kind. All right, guys, Stuart Mandel, really good listen. Anytime we were able to get these 
national guys on. We really appreciate them and try to make the best of it. I thought he was as good as Bruce Feldman last year and, and Brando as well. So, look, we're going to continue to try to get these guys on for you. They always have an interesting perspective. You know, we, we're all interested in that national perception of the program, and we try to bring on as many people as we can to provide that. So, thanks again for listening this week. I know a lot has gone on and transpired. Appreciate you guys putting up with me as a sub, QB2. Um, if you guys are going out to Austin, find me. I'll have koozies and shirts to give away if you guys want some, some swag. But listen, we're going to Austin. We're coming back with a W. Let's go kick some ass. Go Cajuns. More lies, more conversation, girl. It really don't matter because I'm not leaving you. So you're hanging with another man. You got to get more creative, girl. I ain't believing you. Stop trying, stop contemplating, girl. Nothing in this world's gonna make me break. It's gonna take much more to get me out your life. I ain't tiptoe time, I'ma tell you straight. I